Good morning, ECC. I hope you are well. It's really good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is where we are going to be today. Um, and as you're turning there, I wonder if you've ever had a package that you were sending to someone or that you were hoping would be sent to you, and somewhere in the middle, something happened to the package. Okay? Now, in the country I'm from, that's very common. The bigger the package, if it looks like it's a box and there might be precious things in there, Maybe 70% of the box will get to you, but the box itself will get to you. The contents of the box, we can discuss. However, when I was in the United States, I thought surely this will never happen here. And a friend of mine was sending a package from one part of America to me, in a different part of America, and it was certain gifts I had to give some friends of mine. And I was like, this will be great, we'll use the US Postal um, Office and they'll drop this wonderful package at my door. Again, things that in my country just don't happen, um, unless you want the dogs to eat your package. Um, and so I was like, this is great, it'll be awesome, it'll come, then I'll be able to distribute these gifts. Now the package came. And I was like, great. And I picked it up, and it was slightly open. Like, hmm. And then I picked it up some more, and I discovered, no, it's actually very open. And about 70% of the things were there. The other 30% was missing. Now, I'm not saying it was necessarily the US Postal Office. Maybe someone was walking past the house and felt sufficiently philanthropic with my stuff. And chose to relieve me of said stuff. So I called my friend and I was like, did you seal this thing properly? And she was like, absolutely, and she sent me the pictures. And she was very frustrated at what happened, why? Because this was her package. The simple job was deliver the package, deliver it in full, don't mess up the package, don't deliver it to the wrong person, deliver it as I have told you to do, when I have told you to do, with everything in it, as I have asked you to do. In the passage of scripture we are about to read, the joy is God himself has people he is sending. Our privilege, our joy even, is to be those who either go or send exactly as God has intended for us to do. In the way he has intended for us to do. By his enablement, according to his instructions, for his glory, and our joy. And that's a, that's a thing I hope to leave us with. A sense of deep joy that we can rejoice that our God who is on mission will not be stopped. Nothing is going to interrupt his mission. No one is going to steal his package. He will fulfill the thing for which he sent his word and he will ensure that the people he intended to reach, he will reach them. It's his mission. The church is his missionary. And we have the privilege of going for him, for his glory and our own joy. So Acts chapter 13. I'll read um, just a few verses of it because we're going to be working through the entire text. So we'll just read from Acts chapter 13 from verse 47 down to verse 49. I will read this. And when I'm done reading it, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will respond by saying, you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. 
Acts chapter 13 from verse 47 to 49. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you please help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, would you please make us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 13, one way of thinking about how it starts is you have to start in Acts chapter 11. What has been happening is, right from chapter 1, the gospel has been progressing. God has been saving people. The church has been established and is growing. By the time you get to Acts chapter 11, specifically those last few verses, I'll just read them for you from verse 25. So Barnabas, who we actually met earlier in the book, went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And this is Antioch in Syria. We'll talk more about that. For a whole year, he met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's down to verse 29 of chapter 11. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul are kind of the lead people in this church in Antioch. And so by the time we get to chapter 12 from verse 25, the verse just before chapter 13, it says, And Barnabas and Saul, those two again, returned from Jerusalem, because they had gone to Jerusalem to give aid, social aid, physical aid to the church in Jerusalem. They came back to Antioch, Syria. And when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, chapter 13, verse 1, here we go. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called the Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, fast, then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Now again, this is the church, in, the church of Antioch. Now there are several Antiochs in the Bible. There's Antioch here, which is Antioch, Syria, and there's Antioch elsewhere called Antioch, Pisidia. Why do they have the same name? Same reason the capital of America is called Washington, D.C., and there's Washington State, where Pastor Will Barkley is from, named after someone great called Antioch Epiphanes. Don't let that confuse you too much. The point is, Antioch was a cosmopolitan place, and you can see that in the makeup of the people here. It's not just like a Jewish place or a strictly Italian place. No, it's mixed. You have the leadership, which is a reflection of the church. Barnabas, who is a Jew, a Levite actually from Cyprus. Simeon, the Niger, that Latin word Niger means black or African. In short, he looked like me. Lucius, 
a Cyrene from Libya. That's a Roman name. We don't know who he was. We don't know anything about him. Manaen, the Hebrew version of that would be Menahem, who was Herod's childhood friend. They grew up together. This was Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who was involved in the death of Jesus, that Herod. It's interesting. You grow up with someone, one of you kills Jesus, the other one of you follows Jesus. And he was likely an aristocrat, one of those noble Jews who grew up breathing that rarefied air of Jewish nobility. Took very different paths. And then Saul, who we know, persecutor of the Jews, was powerfully converted in chapter 9, one of the leaders and members of this church, and by his own testimony later, later, the last of the apostles. So Barnabas and Saul bookend this list, and that's important, because I think it points to their importance in the church. This church that is full of prophets and teachers, of prophet teachers. Now, while this church was doing what churches do, praying, fasting, worshiping the Lord, God spoke and said, set aside for me those bookends, those very important, those in fact most important of your leaders, Barnabas and Saul, set them apart for me, for the work I have for them. Now, how did the Holy Spirit speak? We don't know exactly, but scripture says this, that there were prophets. This was the time when prophets were still in operation, probably through one of them. How he spoke is not what matters. What he said, that's what matters. He has clearly made it very clear to the church I want Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, set them aside for me. And they are to leave the church and they are to go on what would eventually be called Paul's first missionary journey. Now, at that point when you read the story, when you're like, the Holy Spirit said this, they were not, not under any confusion about who said it, set apart Paul and, and Saul for the work for which I have called them. You'd be like, okay, great. So then Barnabas and Saul went and said, guys, we will miss you. It's been so good knowing you. We will go. If we meet, great. If we don't meet, you know, be in prayer. Um, we'll see you when we see you, but the Lord has called us. We love you, right? That's what you'd expect because the Holy Spirit made it clear. But look at what happens. After the Holy Spirit makes it clear, verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid hands on them, the teachers and apostles, and sent them off? What? <laughs> Paul and Barnabas didn't just like pack up and leave? Like then the church prayed some more, then the church laid hands on them, an act of saying we affirm your calling and we use our authority to send you out, we are responsible for you, by implication we will support you. Then the church sent them as opposed to them just going on their own? Yeah, it is the church who sent them. And in case you had missed Luke's point that it is the church that sent out the missionaries, look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went, pause. I thought you just said the church sent them out. Did the church send them out? Yes. Did the Holy Spirit send them out? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. Right? How you know it was the Holy Spirit who sent them out is because it is the church who sent them out. God's representative on earth is called the church. God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to the church and said, you set these people apart and the church using their authority given to them by Jesus Christ from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you, the church, 
send these people. Think about it. The church is called the bride of Christ. She speaks for him. She's called the body of Christ. She literally moves for him. She's an embassy, the official representative of God and his kingdom deploying his ambassadors on earth. Not just rogue individual Christians doing whatever they want. The official authority God gave was given to his church. You realize Barnabas and Saul could have said, we don't need you guys. We are the apostles here. In fact, you people came to faith through us. What do you mean you're sending us? We're sending ourselves. You realize Barnabas and Saul could have said, we all know the Holy Spirit said this. So guys, it's been real. We love you. Deuces. Bye. They didn't do that. Think about the humility of these men. They said, no, God's church will send us out. God's church will affirm us. But why? Por qué? As my Latino friends would say. Mark it down. Because the church is the means, the method, and the goal of missions. I'll repeat that. Why were they being sent out by the church? Because the church, not just rogue individual Christians, the church is the means, it's how God intends to move, it is the method, it is the whole strategy of God, and it is the goal of how God will do his work, it is the goal of missions. It's not just go and preach the gospel, that's not the end goal. Paul and Barnabas are not just to go around the place saying, Jesus loves you, get saved, okay, you're saved, yay, bye. Jesus loves you, you guys have some people who need some discipling, here's some books, okay, bye. No, that is not how God structured this thing. It is God's design because it is God's mission. He is the God who's on mission. His mission is called, his church is called the missionary. He is a good design, who, he has a good design for his children to come into these families called churches. It is a generative design. It keeps multiplying, which is what families tend to do. It is generational. It lasts a very long time. And where missions is concerned, God is playing a much longer game than us. A much longer game. And you will see Paul describe that in detail in a little bit. It is a grave and important mission, which is why we have to slow it down. My brother is a neurosurgeon. And I was asking him, how, much, how long, for example, do some of your most complicated um, neurosurgery cases take? He was like, oh, maybe 18 to 22 hours. I was like, what? Almost a day? He was like, yeah, some of those things take very long. But he was like, yeah, duh, of course they take very long. Because the more delicate the organ, the more careful you have to be. God is on mission. It is the most important mission in the universe. He is saving lost sinners. Something that important can't be done flippantly, frantically, rushedly. No, we slow it down and ask, how does God intend to do this thing? We slow it down and ask, what has God said? Who has he said should do this thing? You know who's a great prototype and example of Barnabas and Saul here at ECC? Here's a hint. His name begins with A and ends with R. Anwar. There's a reason we call him the Lion of Lebanon. The man is smart. 
He's articulate, he's charismatic, he's intelligent, he's been here for 26 years. He could have just said, ECC, I know better than all of you guys, it's been real. Do says, you'll find me in Lebanon. He could have done that. He could have said, I have a Bible in my hand. He is the Lion of Lebanon. Put a Bible in his hand and get out of his way. Instead, like Paul and Barnabas, he submitted to you. He said, the only way I'm going to Lebanon is if you all send me. He's been here longer than all of us. Yet, he submitted to us. Are you seeing it? This is how God designed it. That churches send missionaries not to just go preach the gospel and do good things, spiritual things, but to plant churches. The great commission Jesus gave in Matthew 28 and other passages, how did the apostle respond to that? By planting churches, real spiritual families. And that is why our dear Lion of Lebanon didn't just wake up and say, I'm called, I've gone. He's a prototype, not only for future missionaries, but for you and I. We affirmed his call. We sent him out. We will support him because we know that God is on mission. We as his church are the missionary and we recognize that he has set apart Anwar and Negusi and Manzaneras to go plant churches, strengthen churches. That's the model here. That's why we do it this way. Not because we are smarter than everyone else, not because we think we know better, but that's what scripture says. So when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, that you isn't me as an individual Christian. It is you, corporate, the church. We go out in his name, with his authority, as the ultimate missionary. And friends, you realize, from a human resource management perspective, this is a really dumb move, right? I know you guys are going, are you saying something that happened in the Bible? Was, yes. Who gives away Saul and Barnabas? Who does that? From a human resource management perspective, you're thinking, no, those are the guys we retain. We send the B team. We keep these guys. And maybe some of you are wondering, who sends Anwar? Answer, God does. Anwar is God's property. ECC is God's property. And God is free to send them wherever he pleases for his mission. And the way he sends them is through his church to establish these embassies. Now, I am a Kenyan. I can tell you a lot about Kenya. I can tell you about the 586,644 square kilometers of earth called Kenya. I can tell you about her history, her government, her tribes, her languages. You know what I can't do? I can't set up an embassy of Kenya in Abu Dhabi. I would love to, but I can't. I have no official authority to do so. The Republic of Kenya did not give me as an individual, that authority. In a similar way, God gave his authority to his church to establish embassies elsewhere by recognizing, affirming, sending the right people, the souls, the Barnabases, the very best to go to those places and do that work. 
Now, unsurprisingly, they are sent out and their strategy is to go to these cities because it seems like from these cities, the rest of the information called the gospel, this message called the gospel, will flow. And their strategy will start with the Jew, then go to the Gentile. And that's what we read about in the next verses. But as the gospel goes, it faces opposition. Look at verses 6 to 12. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You have this, this little showdown, if you will, with a magician. Now, I'm sure Paul and Barnabas expected opposition. I mean, Paul used to be the opposition, remember? He used to be the opposition against the Christians. So he's, he probably knows there's some kind of opposition coming, but I'm not sure they thought it was going to come from a Jew who's not one of the leaders, much less a Jewish magician. Magic was completely disallowed by the Jewish law. It was a sin. Divination and witchcraft was completely abominable. So here is this Jewish magician who shows up, and there's a little ironic interplay between Saul and Elymas, between the false prophet and the true prophet. Elymas being the false prophet, Paul being the true prophet. Elymas having two names. And there's a little wordplay there. Bar-Jesus, but he really is Bar the devil. Bar means son of. He's not son of Jesus. He's actually son of the devil. That's what Paul calls him. Paul also has two names, which provides him a great connection with this guy called Sergius Paulus, the proconsul or the governor of this particular district. Elymas twists the straight ways. Paul once opposed the straight ways. Now he's preaching them. Elymas, full of deception, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit. Elymas, blinded and sought someone to lead him by the hand. Paul was blind, was led by the hand, and now he sees. And even in this act of Elymas being blinded, it seems like the hope is that what happened to Paul will also happen to Elymas. That his physical blindness will alert him to his spiritual blindness and the need for true spiritual light. So this miracle happens, right? And Elymas goes blind. At that point in the story, I'm going, ah, voila, that's it. Everyone has to believe Paul at this point. I mean, the guy just made someone go blind. And you would think that the governor, the proconsul, believed in Jesus Christ because of this miracle, right? Ah, but is that what it says? It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Not the miracle. Because it is not the miracle that saves, it is the message. 
The miracle was not what he was in awe of. It is this message of the Lord. Because faith comes by hearing. Not by seeing miracles, but by hearing the miraculous truth of Jesus Christ. And that is the one thing in Paul's life that he never, ever compromised. This message of the gospel. Never once, and you'll see it again in short order, him fully fleshing that out. Why such an emphasis on the gospel? Because the gospel is what gives rise to the church. No gospel, no church. But when you have the true gospel, it produces a gospel people called the church, and those gospel people engage in gospel mission called church planting. And what happens when you plant a church? The cycle begins again. They preach the gospel, which gives rise to a new church, and that church goes on gospel mission, and we start again. And this has been happening for the last 2,000 years. That's why we can't play games with the gospel. No gospel, no hope, no church. To quote a friend of mine, a church that sidelines, ignores, does not preach the gospel, or is confused about the gospel, is like a blind Uber driver. A church that is confused about the gospel is like a forgetful historian. A church that is confused about or does not preach the gospel is like a colorblind painter. A church that is confused about the gospel or ignores the gospel is worthless than worthless. They are an elevator to hell. That is why we can't compromise that message. It is humanity's only hope it is the only thing that gives rise to an eternal covenant people called the church. And it is the only way the mission will be propagated by that missionary called the church. Paul was 100% clear on what the gospel is. Whether he preached to the Jew or the Gentile, he might have changed his approach. Because he knew that the Jews had this long history and the Gentiles had no idea what that history was. He changed his approach, yes. But what the gospel was, was never ever compromised by Paul. And in the next section, we see him do that. He has this first of his speeches ever recorded in the book of Acts, here in verse 13. Now Paul, and by the way, once he's called Paul after this, he's always called Paul, the rest of Acts, and he always comes before Barnabas. It's almost like Luke is saying, there's been a little change here, and the main character now is the person who by God's authority, through God's church, is taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos, this is verse 13, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into a synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, 
a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in, says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. He just used Israel's history to explain the gospel. And in fact, when you have the time, read those verses and Acts chapter 2. It's uncanny how Paul and Peter have the exact same formula, which is not surprising. They're preaching the same gospel. And here's basically what Paul says. Number one, you killed him. The very Jews he's speaking to. You killed him. You did it in fulfillment of what he said he would, you would do. You condemned him. He was innocent. You killed him. Next thing he says is, he was cursed on a tree. Rather, he was laid down from a tree. And every Jew would know he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, which say this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Wait, Paul, you just said he was innocent. So what do you mean he is cursed by God? Ah, he is not bearing his own curse. He is bearing the curse of God on all the enemies of God. He is bearing the curse of God on those who rejected God like their father Adam did. He's bearing the curse of God of eternal separation from God, bearing the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. The innocent lamb of God was hung on a tree, cursed. An innocent one was cursed, bearing that curse of God. For who? You. Me. The very ones who killed him. And then the best part, but God raised him. 
And the witnesses Paul calls are not only God himself, but the very many people who saw Jesus raised. In fact, in many ways, that's the main point of his gospel presentation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's do a quick Bible study. Do, do me a favor. Every time you see the word raised or raising, just shout it. We'll start um, from verse 22. And when he had removed him, he up David to be their king. Skip down to verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he from the dead. Verse 37. But he whom God raised. Do you catch it? He's making the point that, look, God raised these kings. God raised David. But guess what? A greater king was raised. Not just raised up as king, but raised up from the, from the grave. These other kings, the other point he makes, David, this great king, he was raised as king. Yeah, he also died and rotted. So decay is the gentle Bible way of putting that. Ah, but this Jesus didn't die and rot. He died and rose. And until he returns, he will be redeeming. This is Paul's gospel. That's why he's citing Psalm chapter 2, which is an enthronement psalm, the psalm of the king. He's trying to tell them, your real king is not David. The promise that was made to David is that David would have someone on the throne forever. This Jesus is his offspring. This Jesus did not see decay. This Jesus reigns forever. Now that's good, but that's not necessarily good news for me, right? That's good. But how is that good news for me? He answers that question in verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. That there is forgiveness of your sins, your sins that have brought upon you and I the curse of God and separated us from God. There is forgiveness found in whom? In Jesus Christ, in believing in him. And believer, if that's you today, this is cause for joy, that our sins have been forgiven. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel, Emmanuel's veins. And us sinners who are plunged beneath that flood, by faith plunged beneath that flood, have lost all our guilty stains. All of them. And how you know Paul is a good preacher, he doesn't just tell you justification by faith, forgiveness of sins if you believe. He also issues a warning. Verse 41, 40 and 41. Beware therefore, lest what he said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In context, he's quoting Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4 that says, the righteous will live by faith. And the warning here is, if you do not believe God, you will suffer his judgment. Unbeliever friend, if you are here, we love you. Which is why, as good Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, we want to let you know this warning, that if today you reject Jesus Christ, if you refuse to believe in him, the only thing that awaits you is the eternal curse of God, eternal separation from God. 
Eternally, you will be in a very painful, conscious hell. That's the warning. But the invitation is, believe. Believe and be saved. Believer, I pray you know the gospel. And not just know the gospel, I pray you and I love the gospel. Adore God for the gospel. Be astonished by the gospel. Church, I pray that this is not just the foundation of our lives, but the foundation of our church. To the point where if I or anyone else should come up on this stage and preach a different gospel, you would fire me and fire us because then we are worth less than worth less. I pray that the gospel for us would matter for our loved ones. It's not only hope for unbelievers, by the way. It's hope for us. This is what will save. This, by the way, is why ECC is so committed to expository preaching. Did you notice what Paul was doing here? He went through the whole Bible. He went through Israel's history, showing them who? Jesus Christ. If you have your bulletin, there's a very interesting line there on the sermon. Let me read it for you. The sermon... This is in your bulletin. Is when God most clearly speaks to us through his word. We believe that God, the Holy Spirit, works through the preaching of God's word to show us Christ. We endeavor to make the main point of the sermon, the main point of the text. This is known as expository preaching. The preacher does not aim to entertain or to give life lessons, nor advance his own agenda, but to remain faithful to the message of scripture explaining its meaning and applying it to our lives. Expository preaching is Christ-centered, which means that we aim to see how every text of Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ and his sacrificial death to save sinners. Now, that's not written there because Aubrey is brilliant. To be clear, Aubrey is brilliant. He can out-Greek and out-Hebrew everyone I know. But believe it or not, he's just not that brilliant. He is shamelessly, shamelessly sponging that from Paul. Shamelessly. Oh, and by the way, that's not original to Paul either. <laughs> Paul is shamelessly sponging and borrowing that from who? Jesus Christ. That's why Luke 24, 27 says, the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, talking to these people who didn't understand anything about Jesus, said that starting with the law and all the prophets, he showed them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Pause and think about that for a sec. The risen Lord Jesus Christ used expository preaching to tell people about himself. I mean, he's risen. Couldn't he just like wing it? Like walk through a wall or something? No, because faith comes by and hearing the word about Christ. That's why we are committed to expository preaching. That's why Paul was committed to expository preaching. This, by the way, is why we are committed to sending men like Anwar who know the gospel, know the word, are strong and firm and convicted about that word, lest they go somewhere and cause more problems. Lebanon has enough problems. They do not need someone causing eternal problems. Lebanon has enough problems. They do not need someone there who relegates them to hell and causes them eternal suffering. There's more than enough problems they have to deal with. That's why we send our best. Not because we want to see him go. Like, like we said in the prayer meeting, it is a pain to see you go. It's a pain. 
But it's a joy for Beirut. Isn't it? That's why we send our best. That's why we as a church affirm and do that work. That's why we use our money and leverage it so that others may come into the eternal dwellings of God. God is on mission. His missionary is called the church, not just rogue Christians, missionaries at large. His missionary is called the church. We send out people. And then lastly in this passage, look at the response. Look at the response to this gospel. From verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So at this point, it looks like, oh, things are going well. People have accepted the message. Okay, at least not accepted. At the very least, they are open. They want to hear more. Then verse 44 happens. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews, and that phrase is not just the people, it's usually indicative of their leaders. The Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the, of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they come the next Sabbath, and almost the whole city is there. Now that's hyperbole. It's saying there were a lot of people, more than had ever been seen. And when they show up, a strange thing happens. The Jews, who Paul had just spent a lot of time explaining the gospel, using their own history, reject the gospel. Meanwhile, the Gentiles accept it. These Jews suppress the gospel. Now, you see, when, when, when Paul had a showdown with Elimas, that was satanic, right? That was Paul saying, do you son of the devil? Elimas was a satanic agent. This isn't satanic. This is just good old-fashioned sin. They were just jealous. No garden variety sin. And that sin was to revile, contradict, suppress the gospel. And right there, you and I recognize we are never in charge of the response to the gospel. We are only in charge of conveying the gospel. Not only as individuals, but as an entire church. And it's interesting to me that they reviled Paul, and I wondered what would happen if we were reviled corporately. You see, when you're reviled individually, that's almost a badge of honor, right? If I come and tell you, Raymond comes and tell you a story about how, yeah, I've been witness, witnessing to this guy in, in my workplace, and he just, he basically spat at me and said, you are full of negativity. You're always talking about sin and God's wrath. Get out of here. In fact, I'll make sure the boss fires you. If he told you that story, what would your reaction be? You'd be like, yeah, Ray, really suffering for the Lord. What a guy, right? 
Okay, flip the script. If ECC is reviled as those people who are always talking about us being sinners in the hands of an angry God, if ECC is reviled as those people who are very narrow-minded and only talking about Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, narrow-minded, negative people, Tell the truth. Wouldn't you be the first one to send a furious email to Aubrey? Aubrey, we need to change strategy. You know we need to be known as the people of love in this community. They're hosting us so nicely. If we were corporately reviled, would we still have conviction-fueled courage and boldness like Paul and Barnabas? Or would we all be all about hashtag tolerance? Let's just keep the status quo. And this is hard in our day and age, when the highest value is seen as tolerance. In other words, don't ruffle any feathers, don't tell the truth. Whatever you do, don't tell the truth. Now, I'm not saying in every situation we should be brash, but I am saying if we are convinced that this is the truth, at some point, our convictions will require courage. The difference between convictions and opinions? Opinions are things you hold. Convictions are things that hold you. Are we held together by the conviction that there is a God who is holy and loving, died to save sinful humanity, and he is the only hope of the nations? Because for Paul, he was like, you know where I am rooting my courage and my boldness? All the way back in my missional God, who spoke in Isaiah 49 saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Now, the you there is a bit mysterious. We're not sure who he's talking about, but that is clearly applied to Jesus Christ, like Pastor Aubrey said. Jesus is the light of the Gentiles. Jesus is the light of the world. And he has said, we are a city on a hill. We are that light who, as a church, send light to the very ends of the earth as far as the curse is found. And the curse is found everywhere on this earth. And lastly, they thrust aside the salvation and grace of God. They didn't deem themselves worthy for it. Better translated, they thought they were too good for it. This thing that is being offered to the Gentiles, now nah, we are too good for that. We have better plans for our lives. What a sad, sad way to end for those who rejected. But notice how Scripture says they shook the dust off their feet, which is a way of saying God is going to judge you. We leave because you have rejected our message. God's going to judge you. And the disciples were filled with what? Joy. Why were they filled with joy? Because the God who made the promise to save his elect was in the business of doing just that. That's why verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, these people who have no Jewish history, they began rejoicing, there's that joy again, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed that in every nation, in every people group, there are those who God has appointed to eternal life, and they will get saved. Some of us think, oh man, Somali hearts are a little harder than Nairobian hearts. I guarantee you that is not the case. Some of us think, oh man, Indian hearts are so much softer than Australian hearts. That is not true. Human hearts come in one fashion, hard. 
but God takes out hearts of stone and by the gospel puts in hearts of flesh, fills those hearts with his spirit and moves them to obey his command, gathers them into churches, turns them into missionaries who send out others to do the very same work. So as we close, some things I would want us to think about. Firstly, will we trust that God knows what he's doing when it comes to mission? Will we trust that he knows what he's doing? Notice how it said that this thing took 450 years earlier. Paul is saying this, God has been playing a very long game and he knows what he's doing. In our short lives, 80, 90 years, we don't see the whole thing. He knows what he's doing. Will we trust that he will save his elect? He will. Here's the second question. Will we trust that the real mission is primarily spiritual? That the only thing the church brings to this world is the gospel. Other people can feed hungry children. Other people can give shoes. I'm not saying those are bad things. But church, you know the only thing we bring to this world that no one can bring? The gospel. The only thing we bring is people like Anwar. No one else can bring that. And will we trust that in God's good design, that is the goal? Next question. Will we rely on God's word to achieve God's mission and not our personal preferences and passions? Young people, let me talk to you for a sec. If you're in your 20s especially, you have a lot of zeal for the gospel. Praise God. Praise God for that. Will you temper that zeal with knowledge? I'm not saying take down your zeal. No, 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 no. In fact, increase the zeal. But remember, God has given us a method on how to direct that zeal. Last two questions. Will we trust God when he says that the global mission is through the local church primarily? Not through me, so that glory comes to me and look at these things I did but through the local church sending out its best. And last question, will we pray for God to raise more Anwars, raise more missionaries, and send them to the ends of the earth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, Holy Father, that everyone here would hear a better sermon than the one that was just preached, that an eternal work would be done in all our hearts, and that you would receive great glory at this time. Grant, Lord, that for Anwar and Juline, for Beirut, for CBC, that they would be a light for the Gentiles, that they would reach the very ends of the earth, that the same way there was a small church in Antioch, there would be a small church somewhere in Beirut that would send out missionaries to the furthest parts of the world with your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.